Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Sean Atkinson. Today we're talking about healthcare cybersecurity, a malicious domain blocking and reporting, or MDBR, a service here at CIS. And joining us in this discussion are John Rigi and Ed Madison. And uh, John, would you mind giving us a brief introduction? Sure. As you said, John Rigi from the American Hospital Association, Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity and Risk, joined the uh, AHA about three years ago after spending a, a few years, 28 to be exact, at the FBI. So happy to be in a role that uh, enables me to still help folks, especially healthcare these days. Absolutely. Thank you. And Ed? Sure. I'm Ed Madison. I uh, am the Executive Vice President of Operations and Security Services at the Center for Internet Security. Um, I spent the majority of my career uh, as an IT and cyber professional in the United States Army for approximately 25 years and then uh, was able to have a couple of CISO roles uh, to including about four years in healthcare. And so that, uh, uh, you know, ties in nicely to the topic we have at hand today. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So I want to start off with um, really talking about your perspective uh, on the state of healthcare uh, cybersecurity today. Uh, John, what are your thoughts there? Well, there's quite a bit to talk about there. Unfortunately, plenty of uh, bad news in the one sense that uh, due to the pandemic, we've seen a pretty dramatic increase in cyber attacks targeting healthcare. Healthcare was always a favorite target of cyber adversaries because of the nature of the records we have, the vast, uh, the vast quantity of records, and the fact that they sold for quite, quite a bit more on the uh, dark web. But the pandemic tremendously exasperated the problem because one, we had tremendously expanded networks to accommodate the increase in telehealth, telework, telemedicine, cloud services brought on by the pandemic. And then the, the bad guys, our cyber adversaries, didn't waste any time. They started attacking that vastly expanded cyber network, uh, not only to steal data and research uh, related to COVID-19, vaccine development and treatment protocols, but ransomware attacks, those debilitating ransomware attacks that we hear about almost every day now, unfortunately. Uh, and then, of course, the third issue that we found is that not only do we have expanded networks, expanded attack surface, increased attacks, and we had far less resources in healthcare to deal with this increased threat. Because of the pandemic, a lot of hospitals had to cancel elective surgeries, and many patients were reluctant to seek treatment during the pandemic. So unfortunately, a perfect storm of factors led to an increase in cyber risk. But there is good news, including what we're going to talk about today, and I'll get into that a little bit more later. Excellent. Thank you, John. Ed, your thoughts in the space. Yeah, so um, as I think back a few years, so absolutely everything that John had to say about the increase in risk during the pandemic is absolutely true. Um, 
But I'll go back a little bit further even, and, and even before the pandemic, there are some kind of inherent uh, problems in in healthcare of providing the cybersecurity that they need. They were, uh, you know, despite the fact that they have the crown jewels of, of all identity type theft, which is a, a medical record, you know, John alluded to the fact of, uh, you know, they're, they sell for a lot on the dark web. I mean, a credit card number compared to a medical record, there's no comparison, okay? People would love to have a medical record and they pay 10, 20, 30 times as much for a medical record as they do for a credit card. Uh, and so they, they have the crown jewels as far as, you know, something important to protect. But healthcare is is was challenged in in many ways. When when I was running health system IT infrastructure, you know, we were burdened with a lot of older systems, right? Like a lot of legacy systems, um, and also a lot of uh, uh, legacy hardware. You know, that is, you know, medical devices and things that don't get protection and updates and things that normal, you know, like a Windows system might have available to it. Um, and also the sheer volume of devices, you know, the system I worked for, uh, you know, had less than 10,000 people and there were 25,000 things on the network. So that's a lot of things to have to take care of. Um, and they also margins are razor thin in healthcare these days. I mean, uh, it's not unusual for for the margins of a healthcare system that's successful to be in low single digits of uh, return. Uh, so, you know, it's difficult for cybersecurity professionals to get the resources that they know that they might need to protect this, uh, inf you know, their infrastructure. And so it's a, it's a complex problem all the way around. It certainly is. Uh, so, Ed, as you've stated that underlying um, inability or the capabilities that may be lacking in some areas. Are there any recommended strategies that you think are available to the healthcare industry itself uh, to mitigate these types of threats? Sure. So, um, well, we we had, we discussed, you know, the idea that ransomware, phishing, other things are very prevalent against healthcare uh, these days, and so. The bottom line is there's no silver bullet to preventing any of these things and that the idea that every organization should implement a layered defense or a defense in depth approach where you know there's kind of multiple backstops for if things get through the first layer there's usually if there's a second and a third layer of protection then Either you can prevent the attack from happening altogether, or at least the multiple layers of defense give you multiple places where you can at least be alerted to something going on and that you could stop it before it uh, has a devastating effect on your uh, infrastructure. And so, you know, we would espouse that folks use uh, a defense in depth or layered defense approach, and, and then, you know, we can... I, we can let John talk about what you know he would like to there, and then we can even go into some of the specifics of the defending approaches. Absolutely. No, I appreciate that. So, John, as we look then um, from Ed's perspective on underlying strategies, uh, where are we seeing the recognized practices for healthcare organizations that also have alignment to industry standards and compliance programs? What's the interconnection that we can create there? So... Good point. So obviously it brought out by Ed in, in the fact that um, what we try to do is help organizations understand cyber risk is always prevalent. And regardless of the amount 
of uh, human financial or technical resources you devote to cybersecurity, you will always have some level of residual risk. Now, the issue is what is the quality of that risk? And does it affect, does it uh, residual risk impact patient care or safety, or is it just uh, impacting some non-essential administrative function? So layered defense, absolutely no silver bullet. I think those are the key issues. And what I strive to do with our leadership in hospitals and health systems is get them to recognize that cybersecurity, cyber risk is truly an enterprise risk issue. So it's not just about the IT function protecting data in their networks. Cyber risk can actually cause legal and regulatory risk. It can cause reputational harm. It can expose the organization uh, to all types of even financial risk in terms of their credit rating. But again, most importantly, it creates risk for patient care and safety. Uh, lots of standards out there that we look have organizations try to measure or benchmark against. Uh, some of those that are more commonly known are the NIST frameworks. There are some legislatively described best practices uh, under the, it's called the Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity Practices, uh, Section 405D. And of course, there are the CIS, Center for Internet Security Top 20 Controls, which we always recommend as well to our organizations. So variety of standards out there. I think the key is to have some type of framework, some type of standard to measure against and to measure yourself against your peers who are similarly situated. Absolutely. Yeah, and we see these frameworks being utilized in ways to, one, identify kind of the greatest risk and be able to identify that and create then mitigation strategies that can help organizations improve. And then back to add some of your points as the, the underlying infrastructure may be aging and what other protective controls can we put in play to create, you know, kind of the defense and depth model that you had mentioned. So, John, I wanted to see if we could expand upon some of the threats that you've seen, both from the hospital perspective, the healthcare space, what's prevalent now? And I think you alluded to them some in the beginning, but I wonder if we could expand on those. Sure. So the traditional, I'll say traditional threats that even Ed talked about is the theft of protected health information uh, and other data sets that are present in healthcare. So as I always say, you know, in response to the question, John, why are, why is healthcare so heavily targeted? And I say, well, for us, it is the only sector that really possesses multiple highly valuable, highly targeted data sets. So beyond protected health information, you have personally identifiable information of the individuals, names, dates of birth, addresses, children. Then you have payment information as well. You have bank account information, credit card numbers, and also prevalent in healthcare is medical research and innovation, intellectual property. So any of these data sets individually are highly valuable and targeted. You combine them all, uh, they become exponentially valuable to the adversary. You know, I always say to folks, I say, you know, if your credit card number gets stolen, no big deal these days. Often the bank calls you and tells you your credit number has been compromised before you even realize it. No big deal. You, they cancel it and you get a new credit card. If your health care record gets stolen, you cannot cancel your blood type, your diagnosis, your x-ray. Those records have enduring value. 
therefore making them much more valuable to the adversary. They can reuse those records over and over again to perpetrate frauds. So those are the traditional things. The, the, the issue that we're most concerned about right now, of course, are ransomware attacks, uh, targeting hospitals and health systems specifically, because they know if they deny the health system access to their networks and data, it will interrupt patient care and increase the urgency for them to pay. Now, we always say at AHA, and I've always advocated to my former colleagues across government, law enforcement, and the intelligence agencies, you know what? If you attack, you conduct a ransomware attack on a hospital, and you shut down that emergency department or interfere with patient care, that's no longer an economic crime. That crosses the line to a threat to life crime. So unfortunately, we're seeing a dramatic increase in ransomware attacks, and that's why I think what we're going to talk about today is so why it's so important, some of the services being provided by CIS. Absolutely. So, so John mentioned the ransomware and the theft of, uh, you know, the theft of uh, personal uh, protected health information, etc. We also, in, in, has also been my experience that phishing campaigns were highly prevalent across uh, healthcare as well. In fact, the reason, and these weren't regular phishing campaigns, they were targeted phishing campaigns or spear phishing or whatever you might want to call them, in that they... Uh, you know, our healthcare systems are often, all the physicians were, were, were large targets. And, and the reason for that is oftentimes the healthcare systems all publish the, all the information about their doctors because they want people to be able to contact the doctors to get care. And so, for instance, the, the directories of physicians are often uh, publicly available. And so that led itself to phishing as well. Um, in addition to the ransomware and the other theft of data. Uh, those are definitely some of the bigger threats, Sean. And, and, and I will tell you that one of the things that CIS has kind of tried to flip the switch on or, you know, change the paradigm on is all of the frameworks for defending cybersecurity, for creating a defense, were, were mostly built around a complete set of activities, you know, not not anything specific, right? The, so I'll give, you know, whether it's the NIST framework or it's CIS or whatever, if you look at those in isolation, they're a pretty big, you know, pill to swallow, right? There are a lot of things you have to do across, you know, tens or hundreds of domains and things, right? It, at least, I think all of them have dozens of domains, areas that you have to implement controls and things in. But one of the things CIS has tried to do in the last few years is say, okay, let's look at the threats that are actually present in a given industry or, or across the board and say, if these threats are occurring, which ones of the controls out of any given framework would counteract those threats that are happening, right? And so we've, we've taken things like the Verizon Breach Report and other uh, notable sources of what threats are m manifesting themselves and said, okay, you could use these controls to protect against those threats. So as an example, and, and most all of these frameworks all map to one another these days. So whether it's ISO or NIST or it's COBIT or it's or it's the CIS controls, they're all interchangeable in their in the way that they um, map to one another. And so 
one of the things that we were able to do by using this MITRE ATT&CK process on the threats that are out there is that we were able to say if you implement like this subset of controls we you can block the top five threats that are out there impacting all organizations today so you know as opposed to here's everything that's possible in the world and you have to protect against everything I think it's probably reasonable for most organizations to say hey these are the most prevalent threats out there let's let's provide for protection for those first and then expand our programs from there um, and so that that leads into some of the stuff we've been talking about that, you know, we, we were going to talk a little bit today about MDBR or malicious domain blocking and reporting, which for those that aren't familiar is real is really a secure DNS uh, and reporting solution, um, blocking and reporting solution and how that is one of the things that can prevent the ransomware, the phishing and things like that. And, and we're going to go into a little bit of how that's going to how it can do that. Right, Sean? Absolutely. Now, I just wanted to reflect on one of your points, Ed, is utilizing the community defense model allows you to bring these desperate sources, as it were, to bring that intelligence together to make really risk-based decisions to fulfill your overall requirement to build a security program that, one, is not only reliable but has repeatable processes uh, that not only you know follow a compliance framework but are auditable. And it's not just compliance for compliance sake. It actually has security meaning uh, in building an underlying program. Absolutely. So, Ed, can you take us through MDBR? Um, you know how it assists organizations. One, identifying these underlying threats um, uh, that John has identified and that you have identified. Sure. So we'll use uh, the ransomware and the phishing campaigns as a couple of good examples. That um, if if your organization does not have a secure DNS capability, um, then we believe it's part of every, you know, let's say properly planned defense in depth or layered defense strategy should include some sort of secure DNS capability. Okay, and so a secure DNS capability uh, for, for those that are listening, uh, DNS domain naming service is something that every time you type a English URL, uh, you know, www.something.com into a browser that has to go to a DNS server and has to be translated into the IP address where that web server or web application server actually resides on the internet. And so, so you have to use DNS every time you are surfing the web or your email servers or anything communicating on the web usually uses some sort of DNS to <coughs> resolve the, the IP addresses. And so what a secure DNS solution does is essentially keeps track of known bad domains and IPs and prevents users from inadvertently going to those. It physically blocks them. So when you look at preventing ransomware, um, well, first, before I get into a little bit more on it, I want to just say that going to a secure DNS solution from whatever you might be using today is as simple as changing the IP addresses where your DNS servers your or your proxy servers whatever resolves your DNS just changing them to another IP address that's it so literally that it's a very quick and easy change to go from whatever DNS provider you're using now to some sort of secure DNS like MDBR um, 
once you've done that and you've changed where your DNS gets resolved, something like MDBR, and for our, excuse me, for our uh, solution, we partner with a commercial enterprise. So we partnered with a company named Akamai, and Akamai is uh, pretty well known across the internet, and they, they do the DNS resolutions for somewhere between a half and two-thirds of all internet traffic is routed through Akamai's DNS services. And so the, the, the idea is that they see a huge portion of the internet's traffic. And for everything that is known malicious, uh, things like command and control nodes for ransomware, uh, things like known phishing uh, domains that, that send out phishing emails. There are known domains. There are, there are millions of these known uh, bad places to go on the internet. And so by simply providing a repository of them and, and keeping your users and devices from going to those places, we can prevent ransomware attacks and we can also prevent phishing campaigns. You can also prevent malware from being downloaded to machines because of malware links that are in emails and things like that. It just essentially stops those those uh, DNS requests from happening. They just simply get blocked and the user gets stopped from going to those places. Um, it, it is very easy for most of these services to know between good and bad sites. So what I mean by that is it is very rare that you get good sites that are blocked by these services. Once they confirm something is bad, it can get added, but it's really confirmed that it's bad. And it's not a large portion of most organizations' traffic. Most organizations that, that uh, employ a secure DNS service block about one half of 1% of their requests uh, end up getting blocked. You know, but if that is millions or billions of requests, you can see how that quickly adds up to thousands and tens of thousands of possible malware infections, ransomware attacks, phishing campaigns that get prevented by using something like this. Um, a secure DNS solution is something that we call a set and forget type solution. You can set it up, you can change your, where your DNS servers are pointed, and then you don't have to worry about it again. Um, you just it just works uh, and we've had many customers of ours who are utilizing either the hospital MDBR or the state and local governments MDBR have come to us to say hey you know this is something we were skeptical we implemented it and it just works um, and, and so that's a really good uh, it's got to be one of the more simple uh, parts to a cybersecurity layered defense to, to be able to implement. Some are very complicated. You know, doing something like an endpoint protection solution on all of your endpoints or even implementing firewalls or other protection devices like IDSs and stuff, they can, they can require very significant planning and, uh, you know, costs and hardware and software and training. Uh, but something like DNS doesn't require any of those things. So MDBR is simply something that can be done and your users don't even know the difference. Um, so um, I think it's an excellent solution. It's something that, and, and we're not espousing just MDBR, malicious domain blocking and reporting. If your organization has any type of secure DNS solution, we that's wonderful. And if you don't have one, we, we just encourage all organizations to at least look at the players that are out there and select one and make sure this part of your layered defense is taken care of.
So John, uh, we've seen the value proposition um, that Ed has proposed and, and some of the underlying strategies that were mentioned. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and, and Ed, I'd appreciate your thoughts here as well, is have the majority of hospitals and healthcare organizations identified cybersecurity as a strategic priority? Yeah, thanks, Sean, for that. They absolutely have, especially within the past two, three years uh, and the onset of the pandemic. Uh, cybersecurity has been forced to the forefront and to the thinking, to the attention of the C-suite and the boards. I think they all understand these days that, again, as I mentioned earlier, cyber risk is truly an enterprise risk issue. And that uh, theme is unfortunately reinforced every day in the news and the front page of, with reports of the latest attack. So yes, they have been enlightened and uh, they have, the issue has been forced upon them as these attacks increase. And, uh, but as you said, it, the, they do approach it from a strategic perspective. And uh, you know what Edward and I was listening to Ed talk, it clearly this, the MDBR service is something that we have recommended our hospitals explore, especially at the onset of that service. It is free and, um, and it does add to that layered defense capability. Um, one of the things I did want to mention, follow up with what Ed said, is why this is so important to have the DNS service in place is that what we're seeing with these latest ransomware attacks is that the execution of the ransomware now occurs within hours or minutes of penetration versus previously the adversary, the bad guys, would linger in your network for days or weeks and there might be potential for them to be discovered as they uh, exfiltrate data and map the network. But so they know they can, if they execute quickly, there's less chance of them being detected and blocked. Um, and one of the first steps that uh, occurs uh, during the execution of ransomware is that the ransomware itself starts to beacon out, uh, often to a known malicious domain for command and control, calling back to the mothership for instructions to execute the ransomware. So if that service is in place, the MDBR is in place and recognizes that request for domain as malicious and blocks it immediately, that literally could prevent a ransomware attack on a hospital and prevent patient care from being interrupted. So um, we are definitely big proponents of this uh, service, especially, as I said, Ed, I'm always twisting Ed's arm. How long is this going to be free for? Did you say two years, Ed? Did you say three? And then at least, listen, we've got a year at least out there. And uh, we hope to try to work with CIS to get that extended. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to mention, Sean, was um, <clears throat> so in addition to all the known bad domains that Akamai is tracking for us, um, they are introducing, and I know these are buzzwords that people hear all the time, but they do use some machine learning and some artificial intelligence to, to um be able to identify other bad domains that aren't necessarily known yet, right? So, so when we have things that are, you know, zero-day attacks, and, and zero-day attacks are, are typically things that when they occur for the first time, they're not yet known to be bad, okay? And so, but with machine learning and some artificial intelligence, Akamai has interjected into this system for MDBR, there is some capability as well where if they see some things occurring in real time that look like 
like a ransomware command and control node, they will go ahead and block them even though they're not on the known block list. So that that is you know unique in that it is more than just a block list that is you know curated, and so they do take into account some behavioral based stuff, and they they can detect things like new ransomware uh, command and control nodes. And one of the things that even if the software, the ransomware itself is is been around for a while, they often change the command and control locations so they can continue to use the same stuff and and elude these type of systems and so but they still have the same sort of signatures of what they look like and so if they recognize something that looks like a particular known ransomware but happens to be going to a different place they can say aha I think this is this ransomware masquerading or using another command and control node that is new but is a similar type function and so so that is another unique thing about MDBR and the third unique thing I will say about malicious domain blocking reporting is that CIS has access to a lot of data from thousands and thousands of member organizations across the country. And so our instance of MDBR also allows us to add to that commercially available block list and stuff. And so, for instance, if we see amongst a number of public or private hospitals that are participating that they are having significant activity that is not something that we know is bad but is not added to that public block list, we can add it to our instance so that our instance can have other indicators of compromise and different things that, that the public version doesn't have. So that's another unique thing. Um, and I mentioned a few minutes ago that, you know, secure DNS can be a kind of a set and forget type tool. But if your organization is mature enough, you can take the, this is where the malicious blocking part is the set and forget. The reporting part is, uh, is the part that can, you can go to the next level on. And so what I mean by that is if your organization is mature enough to uh, log all of its DNS requests, you can take the information that we report back to organizations on the sites that were blocked and which machines actually got blocked and that could be certain users that could be certain machines that because you don't know initially if there were a million blocks from your organization you don't know if that's a million different users and hosts that are each blocked once or if it's one host and one user that was blocked a million times and so they'll still keep getting blocked and you can just leave it alone but if you do have the maturity and you can uh compare the reporting that we send back to the organization with things like DNS logs, you can go to the next level and actually find the, the cause of the symptoms, right? Not just treat the symptom, but actually say, ah, we've got a user here that needs re-education, or we've got a user that is um, a user whose machine must be compromised because it's reaching out continuously to all these bad locations. And so when you see things like that, you can then take action in your, organ in your environment and get a machine that is compromised, say, off the network. So that's another thing that can be done with the MDBR service. Oh, no, absolutely. I think it adds a whole new level of telemetry, right, to any organization to look at their underlying logs and, and make sense of what's going on with more intelligence. And I think it makes 
obviously cybersecurity programs more informed, makes them better and uh, able to adjust underlying strategies that we've mentioned to accommodate for such actions within the environment. That uh, makes a lot of sense. So, Ed, as we think about... Um, I think John alluded to it, that the current funding model, I think signing up for the service, very simple. Um, the underlying set and forget capability with secure DNS, receiving the intelligence and the reports, having this system look at network pattern matching and doing this preemptive capability, I think has a huge value to any organization. Um, I just wondered if you could take us through the, the underlying service and what is available today to any uh, hospital or healthcare organization. Sure. So I'll start by saying that, that CIS offers uh, MDBR in a couple of flavors, both of which are completely free to the organizations that sign up to use them. Uh, the first is if you are a public uh, entity of any kind, which includes public health systems and public hospitals, then you can sign up under our state and local government version of the MDBR, which is currently free and is funded uh, for the first several years already by the federal government and, and likely will continue. Um, the other version, based on the success we had in the state and local public entity space, and given the pandemic and the things that were happening, uh, we felt it was consistent with CIS's mission to use funding and offer a similar MDBR service to private healthcare organizations. Um, John mentioned uh, the fact that uh, healthcare organizations had to cancel a lot of healthcare. Uh, I know for a fact that many uh, hospital systems revenue plunged 50% or more once the onset of the pandemic occurred. So you can imagine if it was hard, if you were a CISO, and I know one of Sean is our CISO here at CIS. So if you're a CISO and money was hard to come by to begin with, and your hospital system just lost half its revenue, you can imagine it's probably harder than ever to come by money for cybersecurity solutions. Okay. And so we felt like we were in a position uh, and are consistent with our mission to offer a service that CIS paid for for the first year right now uh, av available to all public uh, and private now all private healthcare service uh, systems and so this service um, is available at no cost just simply have to sign up uh, and there's a, an agreement and we just like any service we ever run we don't share everyone is anonymous even the fact that they have the service is anonymous uh, and that their any of their data is only shared with them uh, and to make the service itself better um, we are taking the approach that limited federal funding in the right areas is good for our country and its and its uh, overall collective defense um, and so we are while we are funding the hospital MDBR right now we are working with others uh, John and the American Hospital Association have been helping us get the word out the health ISAC has been helping us get the word out and has also introduced us to folks at the um, at HHS and the federal government and and working through a program that John mentioned the 405 D program which is a public-private partnership that has been helping hospital systems and healthcare with with uh, you know building their cyber resilience and their programs we have been working with them because we think it's a great idea that that 
a program like that could possibly, from the federal government, fund MDBR for hospitals going forward. Um, and so we're looking into that and other sources uh, to continue this program for years into the future. Um, but that's where we are right now, Sean. Fantastic. Thank you. So with the last 10 minutes that we have uh, together, I just want to get your really your final thoughts on uh, where we are, what improvements you think we need to see uh, as we move forward, private-public partnerships, um, and then what we need to do to be better, really, in our industries, both from a cybersecurity and a risk perspective. Uh, John, I'd be interested in your thoughts there. Okay. Um, well, and let's say I'll leave some time for Ed. That was quite a broad question. Anyway, <laughs> you say five or ten minutes or hours, but... Uh, <laughs> I will um, generally, uh, I'll try to be clear and concise here. One of the best ways to mitigate, to prevent uh, cyber risk, and I, I actually should clarify, you can never 100% eliminate cyber risk and cyber threats to an organization. You can only hope to mitigate that. First is really to have the organization understand and treat cyber risk as an enterprise risk issue, which impacts every function in the organization has the potential to create strategic risk in the form of legal and regulatory risk, credit and financial risk, risk to reputation, and again, most importantly, risk to patient care and patient safety. Now, one of the advantages we have in healthcare that most industries do not have is that we have a workforce that is pre-positioned, predisposed to take care and protect patients. I think once the workforce understands that good cyber hygiene is just as important as medical hygiene to protect patients, that will go a long way in helping mitigate cyber risk. When they understand they have to be very careful about clicking on potential phishing emails and suspicious links, which might deliver ransomware into the organization and disrupt patient care, I think, again, you'll have a much more effective uh, cybersecurity team made up of your staff helping uh, be part of that cybersecurity mission, helping mitigate that risk. And again, uh, quite frankly, it's one of the most cost-effective ways to reduce cyber risk. MDBR, extremely important when that human firewall fails. And again, I think uh, everything that we've discussed here, why not do it? It's free, it's simple, and it works. So I would strongly encourage folks to look at MDBR offered by CIS. Fantastic. Thank you, John. Uh, Ed, your, your final thoughts uh, and uh, either recommendations or best practices that you're seeing and how we manage this, this risk, as it were, uh, within the hospital organizations. Sure. So in addition to, you know, uh, a secure DNS service like MDBR, I would, I would highlight that, um, you know, it's important for someone like the CISO to make sure that the organization understands that this risk-based approach to cybersecurity is a destination, right? It's not, it's not, I mean, excuse me, it's a journey. It's not a destination. 
uh, I had destination in my mind, right? So it, it is a journey and not a destination in that you're never going to be done with this, right? As long as there are these sophisticated adversaries that John was talking about, they will continue to iterate and find new ways to uh, exploit our users and our networks. And so we constantly have to come up with new ways to defend them. And, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, it's not like, oh, we've invested, we've got a cybersecurity program now, we're, we're done, right? You know, it, it's, it's something that has to be continually examined. You have to continually, at least I would say on an annual basis, look at the threats to your organization. Uh, and you have to say, are we addressing them sufficiently? And what has changed? And are there any new gaps? And then what, if we're going to spend our next dollar you know where should it go next what is the the most uh, you know the highest level risk that we still have that is something we are uncomfortable with or that has not been covered pr properly and I will tell you those folks that took the approach of they were going to use cyber insurance as the catch-all for for these things are finding out that that that's not going to be the case you know things more and more of the cyber policies are excluding things like the ransom from ransomware can no longer be paid by most policies uh, the idea that cyber insurance is a cost effective is also going out the window in that most cyber policies at renewal are going up 50% over the previous renewal and so cyber insurance while it is one of the ways you can transfer risk to other folks it's not necessarily going to be the answer to a well-designed and executed cybersecurity program fantastic well thank you John Ed that was uh Excellent. Very important discussion. Very important topic. Uh, you know, PHI lasts a lifetime, as we've mentioned, uh, and mitigating the risk with our underlying services and the strategies mentioned here are absolutely critical. So, gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for discussing today uh, with us. And that's all we have for today's show. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. Uh, you can also follow CIS on social media to get the latest uh, cybersecurity news and updates. Until next time, I'm Sean Atkinson. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.